writing to me is so beautiful in that I can't explain everything, but I don't need to explain everything because the explanation is actually coming from the, from the reader. And when people find that connection, they want it and share it. So yeah, I, I love writing. This is the Visible Voices Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word about the Broomdocs Podcast. G'day, I'm Dr. Casey Parker. Check out the Broomdocs Podcast. I strive to bring excellent critical care to our rural, remote, and Aboriginal people in tropical Australia. I like to translate evidence into rural healthcare. There's a lot of cases and some real cool ultrasound pearls. Hi listeners, thanks so much for joining, and I'm so glad to be bringing you this conversation. I'm speaking with Kevin M. Simon, that's Kevin M. Simon, MD. He is the first Chief Behavioral Health Officer for the City of Boston. In this role, he will guide a public health strategy to support Bostonians' growing mental and behavioral health needs at the Boston Public Health Commission. Now, this isn't Kevin's only role. He is an attending psychiatrist at Boston Children's Hospital, an instructor in psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, a Commonwealth Fund Fellow at Harvard University, and a medical director of Wayside Youth and Family Support Network. In terms of training, Kevin completed clinical fellowships in child and adolescent psychiatry and addiction medicine at Boston Children's Hospital, adult psychiatry residency at Morehouse School of Medicine, medical school at SIU, and college at Morgan State. Kevin and I first met as fritters, that's friends on Twitter. I realized that we have Dr. Lois Lee as a friend in common. Lois and I went to medical school together. I reached out to him, and in speaking, our pre-meet, I'll call it, we realized how much we have in common. This includes, and is not limited to, sociology as a major in college, an interest and commitment to prevention and addiction medicine, an interest in a specific patient population, i.e., adolescence, and, well, more. Before we get to the conversation, I'm going to tell you a Risa story. When I was in high school, I was selected, designated by the leadership in the high school to attend a summer five-day conference. I went with four others to what I could say was Columbus, Ohio, but truly it was Granville, Ohio, Denison University. The name of the conference was Youth to Youth. This is around the time of the Nancy Reagan Just Say No campaign. And a Youth to Youth was a conference of youth talking to youth about drug and alcohol prevention. Now, what I took from this conference was not, oh, just say no, and oh, don't do this, don't do that, it's bad. The facts were provided, the emotional, spiritual, and physical side effects of alcohol and other drugs were provided, the information, the data, the facts were provided. More so, the message was positive peer pressure. Make your own decisions. Here's the information. It was incredibly powerful. I was blown away. And well, the rest was history. Now let's get to the conversation where, honestly, we're talking a little bit less about Kevin's role as the Chief Behavioral Health Officer and a little bit more about Kevin's work, his research, and what's important to him. One of the many things I love about your work and your intentionality regarding your focus, your professional focus, is adolescence. And um, I love adolescence. Um, in emer- the emergency department, I would say not all colleagues love adolescence. I do because you can have conversation. You can empower. You can talk to them about their bodies. You can talk to them about their health. You can talk to them about their choices. There's so much positive and critical about this cohort. Yeah, no, when, when we think about just like development, so 
we classically talk about infancy to four years, like a whole host of learning happens. Yes, walking, talking, crawling. Um, but adolescence, and it's actually a rather broad range, right? So adolescence is really the onset physiologically of puberty. So that is happening younger, but let's just say 11 to 12. Technically, the end of adolescence is social. When you get married, when you um, get a job, right? Back in the 70s, average marriage was 23, 24. Now it's actually 30, 28, right? So, so broadly speaking, 11 to 12 to 26. And let's just say 26 because at 26, you're no longer on your parents' insurance, right? That's a very wide range. And so when, we, when we're thinking about traditional adolescence in terms of like the teen or, or, or tween, months is actually a very long time where you can have someone who's shy, um, didn't have self-confidence, and then you see them six months later, and it could they, they really could be a very different person. Um, and to your point about if you treat them with respect, they actually share a lot of information with you. Parents oftentimes um, will ask me, like, wait, they told you that? I'm like, yeah, I, I, I asked the question, and I just sat and I listened. Um, and, and you will find Adam's they have a voice that they'd like to be heard. But as a parent, it's very quick to pivot towards a solution or pivot towards this is how you should do something when really this is the time where they're supposed to take risk, um, explore, and they are formulating their ideas abstractly. Um, so, yeah, so adolescence is, is a really profound period of time. Um, it can present with a lot of challenges. Um, but yeah, I, I I love this age group. Yeah, you said voice, and that wasn't a plant audience. The name of the podcast, of course, is the Visible Voices. But adolescence is when I think people realize I have a voice. Circling back to adolescence um, and addiction, I'm wondering where you see and what you see as the relationship between cannabis and alcohol use and suicide risk among adolescents. This is some of the work you've done. We did we did do a study where we looked at specifically uh, uh, cannabis and alcohol uh, preceding uh, suicide attempt. Um, th- there is evidence that adolescents who engage in um, suicidal ideation, so just having the thought, um, and that transitioning to uh, actual attempt, there is a high percentage who have uh, in that ninety days, at least for our study previous to the admission, we're engaging in cannabis or alcohol. And this makes um, both physiologic and um, like psychological sense in that substances further disinhibit you. And so if you are in a negative space and suicide was a distant thought, perhaps it becomes a more acute thought. If the idea of how you would was a distant thought becomes more of a cute thought and you may be in a state while intoxicated more willing to try um and then what we do know is in terms of thinking about suicide risk one of the questions that we ask um is have you done that before because there's a, a theory that each time someone engages in it they're building up their tolerance at, oh, 
that's not as fearful anymore. Oh, that pain was a little bit more tolerable. And so we we do find um, epidemiologically individuals that have committed suicide often, yes, have had a prior attempt. Um, and we're trying now to piece together what is the correlate between cannabis use and suicide. Because um, there's just a correlate between substances and mental health conditions and mental health conditions and suicide. Um, so I generally say for you, you know, if we can delay the use of a substance, um, it actually dramatically improves the probability of not developing a, a full-blown substance use disorder. Um, and particularly for individuals that have suicidality as a construct in their mind, um, the less you're intoxicated, the better you're able to pull at the tools that we're trying to give individuals when they're in, in that um, state of mind. Um, so, so, yeah, suicidality and substance use, trying to separate those two things uh, is challenging. I'm particularly interested in this because I grew up at a time that cannabis was a drug. It was a drug and it was um, the portal of entry. It was a gateway drug, it was called. And I think it's confusing uh, because now cannabis is legal in some states and cannabis oil is used. People are putting their pets on cannabis. Um, Patients come into the emergency department all the time with side effects from edibles. And I think we need some clarity about, is it safe? Is it not safe? And I think importantly, I think in, we need messaging about cannabis for adolescents and what it does and, and why developmentally, it's just a bad, bad, bad idea. So in reference to messaging, yes. So back in the day, um, 70s, 80s, yes, cannabis use it's interesting. Cannabis use, from a um, survey standpoint, the use pattern is the same amongst age groups. The difference is the potency and concentration of cannabis strains now is much higher. And so even if someone is, um, quote-unquote, using the same amount as their grandparent or their parent was, the type of cannabis is very different. And so to your point, we are seeing people seemingly with a greater propensity of um, cannabis-induced psychosis, uh, hyperemesis. Um, and, I, and I think that's related to the, the potency of the THC, which, again, definitively higher. Um, the messaging and, and the legalization of cannabis recreationally does diminish the perception of the risk for adolescence. Yeah. And if something is perceived to be less risky, the use will be higher. And so we do not see things like um, uh, in, in, in IV forms of substances persistently are low because the thought of the risk associated with an IV drug use, that's high, right? And so the use pattern of IV substances is very low in adolescent age range. And just to clarify for the audience, IV intravenous, in other words, correct me if I'm wrong, adolescents aren't injecting drugs. Correct, yes. There is a very minute percent who do. Um, so 
the messaging for the risk related to adolescent substance use, particularly cannabis in this case, becomes difficult in that there's a large um, body of individuals who can benefit profitably from the distribution of cannabis. And so when we try to have legislation on, well, can we cap the percentage of THC? There's a lot of pushback. Um, can we, you know, produce a commercial? Well, who's producing it? Academic personnel, we don't have necessarily the finances to be blasting a message on all the radio stations, on TikTok, on Instagram, whereas a private company can. And so there will be messaging that, oh, it's not as bad. Um, you know, don't you want to hang out with your with your buddies and get the munchies? Um, so it, it is far more difficult to explain also in a short duration of time, right? The media that's consumed now, 30 seconds, 40 seconds. This explanation I'm giving you is longer than 30 seconds, right? So when we're trying to explain the challenges, we're not as adept at messaging seriousness in short duration. Within the Boston Public Health Commission, there is a substance use preventative campaign called COPE Code Club, which is for adolescents, um, similar in the description that you made of um, yourself in high school being identified as a leader, right? So peer leadership prevention. Um, but the challenge is really just the funding. Um, how much funds can we infuse into a COPE Code Club? And how many adolescents can we identify, train, let alone their adolescents who should be in school and doing other things, um, to put the, to some parents that might seem the burden of how come my youth has to be the person that's sharing this. It was like, because youth actually engage with youth and would hear it much clearer than from uh, Kevin or Orissa. So so it it is a challenge of how do we fund these youth-led peer leadership programs, um, and then uh, scale up. Mm -hmm. So there's such fantastic transitions based on what you just shared. Uh, number one, back to your system's interest, we know the U.S. healthcare system does not value and place money into prevention, right? And that's what we're asking for is the prevention piece. So it's unsurprising that, you know, it's sort of part of your mission and work to get uh, attention and money placed into prevention. Um, you were speaking about peer-peer coaching, peer-youth, peer support, and you actually um, have spoken, published on the relationships of peer connectedness and black medical students. Right, right. So um, this was a, a group of us who recognized, one, that stress is just ever-present amongst a lot of people, but particularly present amongst graduate students who are in medical school. And we recognize that there's a dearth of individuals that are diverse um, within the medical profession, in medical school. So the question was, oh, is there a difference really among students who go to schools where there is a stronger contingency of diversity versus those students who identify as diverse um, that are not at schools as diverse? And 
the evidence is that, yes, if you go to school and you have individuals that look like you, peers that look like you, faculty who look like you, it's actually likely that you can get connected to someone and feel a, a kinship and a friendship easier. And that support is actually very important to survive this process of medical school. Interesting enough, it's that same connectedness that is in the evidence regarding substance use in terms of the risk. Well, when there's poor connectedness to an adult who cares about you, poor connectedness to peers who care about you, there's a worse outcome. Yet if you get connected, there's better outcome. So again, how do you how do I see broad things that seemingly are unrelated, but actually, oh, there's a tie. So connectedness, yes, friendship is actually very valuable in terms of getting to the end goal of a pursuit. As you know, I did my reading on Kevin, and there was something that I wrote down that is directly related to what you just shared, that when you're speaking with parents and or sort of um, environments and bringing up, raising children and adolescents, that at the end of the day, it's about providing a warm, trusting, responsive environment. This brings up an idea of a paper um, that I want to write. So I have a lot of conversations with parents who have teens and they're frustrated that the substance use is not diminishing um, and we have to have a conversation of what is progress. And oftentimes there's a thought, oh, we're going to go to um, Boston Children's or UPenn or or we're going to go to this establishment of medical center and the problem that I have coming in is going to be squashed when I leave. And I have to help parents reframe what improvement looks like. Improvement might be incremental rather than this huge, you know, 90-degree shift. And so conversations, for instance, if you're in our program, we would advocate that you participate in urine drug screening. Now, some people would would push back and say, wait, why are you being so invasive? And I say, well, actually, this is not for me to tell a parent what their uh, child is consuming. It's actually for the child to know or the adolescent to understand. And I've seen this anecdotally. You assume that you're using just marijuana. Fortunately... This I, I have four cases in my mind. Fortunately, they were participating in urine drug testing. And the results comes back, and one was an opioid, was an adulterant within the cannabis. Another, it happened to be fentanyl, was an adulterant. Another, it was nicotine. And another was an, um, a benzodiazepine. All four adolescents would say, I would, no, I only want to be consuming cannabis. And I say, okay. And I'm not going to disagree that that's not what they want to do. I say, in a harm reductionist kind of way, I'd say, is it possible to find a different distributor? And they did find someone different and still participating in the urine drug testing. And we didn't see, oh, only cannabis. Right? So even that information potentially might lead them to, yes, use cannabis less. But certainly when you find that cannabis is also infiltrated with something else, 
you can say to yourself, okay, I'm going to go someplace else. Because, again, these are individuals who are under 21, so they can't go to the legal dispensary, so they're getting it from the street. And in the New England area, if you get a cannabis, a pill, over 70% have something else that's present. And so there are ways that you can have this kind of conversation with the parent to say, hey, they're not using pill anymore. Um, they are participating in the urine drug testing. We found something that was concerning. They made a decision to do something different. Um, they're still checking in with me, right? Those are all positive things that we can affirm and validate to say you're still engaged. And every time I have a conversation and I can participate in doing some motivational interviewing, hopefully over time, and I've seen this, following a kiddo for a, a year, Every time we'd meet, we're having that conversation. There's a little bit of MI. A year plus, there's a, a session we have, and he's like, yeah, I'll try that medication. And in my own mind, I'm like, what? Like, why now? Yet, I'm the person who has been meeting with the person literally weekly, biweekly, for a year doing MI and wondering when is the pivot going to happen? And then he pivots at some point in time, but not on my point in time. And I'm questioning, wait, how come now? Right? So even the person that has all this training, there's a point in time when individuals are going to make a change, and we can't predict when that's going to happen. But when it's there, just be ready to be offering further support to them. That is just so beautiful, what you just shared. It's... it's um it's health design at work, the end user, the person with whom you're working, the patient, the adolescent, the adolescent who wants to solely smoke marijuana, use cannabis, and you're having them, working with them, participating with them to uh, do urine drug screening, and, and as you illustrated, not to tell anybody or share it with the parents, but more to help, you know, sort of co-design this process with the patient. The patient's like, oh my goodness, I thought I was just smoking cannabis and it's got what in it? Yeah, your urine is lighting up, your urine is showing positive for other drugs, the infiltration you discussed. And then at some point they sort of have the agency mm -hmm. to make the decision. And, and you just shared with the audience that we as clinicians, we can't predict, which goes back to the you don't give up on people. You don't Correct. give up on patients. Correct. You can find that they, they will pivot. Um, and so it, it, it's why I'm often hopeful when I'm engaging with a youth who's 17, 18. Um, and use is still occurring, but I know they can find for their own reason why they might want to use in a different way or potentially just, yes, discontinue use altogether. You published in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, two pieces, Daughter's Keeper, The Care and Treatment of Black Girls in America, and Them and Me, The Care and Treatment of Black Boys in America. Yeah, so, um, again, following uh, that summer, um, AXA talk at various places, and um, one of the ways in which I keep my own psychological uh, health is one, engaging in very weekly therapy. So, and I've been doing that for the past four years. And one of the things that will happen in therapy is you get to hear yourself think. 
Um, and I was having a lot of ideas regarding um, sharing stories um, clinically that I have experienced and trying to figure out a way to um, relate that to others. And so um, in Them and Me, um, Tanasi Coates has a book um, that very salient to me and, and important to me, a memoir that he's talking to his son. And so I have a son. Um, at the time, I did not have a son, but just thinking about talking to a younger self um, or a younger clinician. Uh, I, I shared three um, clinical vignettes of patients that I've had who, black or brown, and seemingly for no other reason other than being black or brown, diagnosis was incorrect, treatment incorrect, their feeling of the system very different than others. And I end that piece in that I see myself in them. And so, yes, I might take a little bit longer in talking with them, might be able to take a little bit longer and having a conversation with a parent to explain, yes, I know you've seen a lot of docs, but here's, I, I think this is actually autism. And linking that to the actual objective evidence that we have in the literature to say, oh, yes, autism is very delayed in diagnosis for black boys. Oh, yes, the black boys who unfortunately have the lowest graduation rate, actually when you talk with them, it's not that they don't want to graduate, but they do feel like people don't care. Um, if we pivot to the um, daughter's keeper, I have a daughter, and the same elements and stories and clinical vignettes that I see uh, for black boys, I have for black girls. I was like, oh, I have to share this. Um, and what's interesting is the response has been... Um, rather positive, and what even surprised me is the resonance that it had uh, kind of like across the country and that people would email me and say, I have a son or I have a daughter, but let's say it's an interracial uh, adoptee, interracial marriage, and they're like, you're speaking to what I know uh, my kid goes through, and because of who I am and what I look like, I can't actually relay this the same way. Um, so so it, it's been phenomenal in terms of hearing um, medical centers, uh, teachers say, oh, you know, I want to share this. And I'm like, please do. Um, so, yeah. When you shared your own experience, your lived experience of being pulled over by police while coming to the hospital, uh, when you wrote these articles in the New England Journal, what has been the response of your colleagues um, what have been the responses other than positive? Yeah, so from colleagues, I would say um, at least those that are overtly reaching out to me um, have been positive. Um, what's interesting is, and, and this is why the comment section of the Internet is, is a uh, fickle place, um, you definitely can see that people will dismiss the concept that um, racial and ethnic diversity is important or, um, oh, I have these same stories too within a different context. And my my general response is, 
if you do write about them, I like I'm I'm not here policing what can be written, what can be shared. Um, I'm I'm sharing from my my perspective, um, and so when I experience um, negative criticism, I don't actually see it as a reflection of the person attacking me. Um, I see it as I have to better explain the story. Um, and I share this with, with individuals or, or mentees who will say, how do you write so much? And, and, and how can you? I say, well, I've come to learn even in, in a, a journal manuscript, when someone's editing and someone's critiquing, I don't take it as a personal offense. I take it as, okay, how can I make this message better? And so it makes it a little bit more palatable to hear negative comments because it really drives me to say, how can I help this person understand? Yeah. It strikes me as um, one of the books that you and I now share is Thanks for the Feedback by Sheila Heen. And so these are all opportunities for feedback and being open to feedback and receiving this feedback as a way to be better and grow. And I'd like to close by asking you, vis-a-vis the writing and writing as currency, I learned early in my career that that's a currency, that you can tell a story to someone, you can share it you know, with your colleagues, but when you put it in writing, it has a whole nother element of gravity and, um, I guess, ability to be shared. What's been your experience with writing as a currency? No, so a thousand percent agree. Um, and it's why I uh, read as much as I do, in part, despite what's written, right, we all have our own individual perspectives. And so we infuse ourselves in what we're reading. And my thought with regards to writing is that I'm I'm layering a little bit of a blueprint, but how the person puts, um, you know, the the building up or the structure, the fabric to the story is is going to be in their story. And so what I've seen is, um, you know, uh, someone's written me and said the way that I described. Um, in, in the uh, Daughter's Keeper piece, having one less layer of skin um, was important because they, they've, they've worked with individuals or they have uh, a daughter that, that engages in self-injurious behavior. And what's important is in the editing process, like that was a line that was, that was trying to be shifted. Um, I was like, no, no, no. The one less layer is not a demarcation about differences in race. It, it's actually... Earlier in in the passage, I said, you know, a lot of scratches on the lateral emesis. It's my visual that I saw this person is engaging in self-injurious behavior that I can't replace their skin, but our engagement in talk therapy can potentially replace their skin in that they can find a layer of confidence that they might not have previously had. And so this writing to me is so beautiful in that I can't explain everything, but I don't need to explain everything because the explanation is actually coming from the, from the reader. And when people find that connection, um, they want it and share it. So yeah, I, I love writing. The Risa Wrap-Up. 
Special thanks to Kevin and to his team for ensuring that this conversation happened. It was so great to sit and speak in person. I really, really find importance and value in the topics that we covered, adolescence, addiction prevention, racism in medicine, racism prevention, addiction prevention, and well, overall commitment to health and a healthy society. In my close, I want to give a special hat tip, acknowledgement, thanks to the people from Youth to Youth who have been so important to me throughout my life. These people are and are not limited to Beth Schoening, Cheryl Foley, Ty Sells, and Rodney Williams. That's it for this week, audience. Until next time. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare equity and current trends. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. You can listen on whatever platform you subscribe to podcasts. Our team includes Stacey Gitlin and Dr. Giuliano DePorto. If you're interested in sponsoring an episode, please contact me, Risa at thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. I'm based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I'm on Twitter at Risa E. Lewis. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued.